Let's pray. <clears throat> our gracious God and our Father, again, uh, we come to you looking for the work that only you can do, uh, that work that produces fruit that will last unto eternity, that work that overcomes all the distractions that fill our minds, all those obstacles that hinder us from seeing Christ clearly and seeing our sin clearly, and doing that work uh, that would inevitably and consequently lead to the glory of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that your gracious hand would be upon us, that through uh, your word and through the ministry of your spirit, that you would draw us closer to yourself, and especially as we open scripture to understand ourselves. In all this, Father, we, we thank you uh, for what we have learned in these past few days, the things that we've been reminded of that we had forgotten before, uh, those things where we are simply leaning upon the faithful preaching and teaching of those that have taught us in the past and the faithful instruction of our parents, or faithful mentors that you sent our way uh, that perhaps didn't speak of all these things, but they showed them to us in life and in godliness. And Father, we thank you for all these things and ask that you would so equip us and mature us that we might provide such examples to others as well, whether at this camp or in years to come. Again, we remember those uh, who are injured. We pray, Father, for their healing and that you would bring a measure of relief from the pain that they feel and ask that you um, would be near to them and comfort them according to their need. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we come to the talk that we've entitled Choosing, because choosing is what the will of the heart does. And without getting into the history of this, in many ways, uh, the reformers, I'm thinking of Calvin and I'm thinking of Luther in particular, understood that in terms of the light coming after darkness, the Reformation coming out of the, the Church of the, the Middle Ages and under the, the hand of Rome, they understood this was, this was a crucial, crucial thing in discussions about free will, understanding ourselves and how this uh, part of, of our inner self, our heart, we would say, um, how that impacts the way we understand salvation itself and how it impacts faith. And so we want to review in this first session, you know, what the will of the heart is and how it functions and all of that. So the will of the heart is where you choose or refuse. Probably in the Old Testament, it's about 200 times that the word for heart has this particular emphasis uh, in view. Uh, it's the will of the heart that determines, uh, it decides, it resolves, it makes commitments, or it sits back and is passive by intention. Deuteronomy 30:19, Moses says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. The same words that we have from Joshua, the end of Joshua, uh, that, where he says, choose this day whom you will serve. The idea is that you need to make a commitment to serve the true and the living God. You need to turn aside from idols and uh, the gods that surround us from the various nations. There's a commitment there. Uh, the same sort of idea is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 37, where it says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart. Paul is speaking there to, to the will of the heart. Or in John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God, whether I'm speaking on my own 
authority. And so this is where all of our intentions, uh, the thoughts of our mind, and our desires are ultimately, finally resolved. And either those thoughts and desires are um, decided upon and pursued, or they're denied. Um, And we do this actively and passively. We'll see in a few moments. Uh, To give you a trivial example of how this works, it happens in the first few seconds of the day when uh, the worst sound in the world, uh, I don't know who came up with the idea of an electronic buzzer for an alarm, but it's not a nice person. Um, But you hear that electric beep, beep, beep going off. Some of you have it set to music or something like that. That actually makes sense. But you hear that electronic sound and your desires are saying, oh, this bed is so warm. Just sleep a little bit longer. And your mind and your conscience is saying you really need to get up. But in the end, it's your will that decides that decision, whether to hit the snooze, um, whether to sleep, whether to get going, or whether you're going to fall asleep and miss a test or a deadline or lose your job. And so, and that's a trivial example, right? And our days are composed of hundreds of these moments where it's not just about what we're thinking or what we want to do, it's, it's what we resolve to do, or whether we decide simply to stay back. The simplest way to describe it is this is the part of our heart, that ability and that final verdict of our heart that says yes or no. That's the simplest way to think of it. Whether we're going to say yes or we're going to say no. Because this is where the battle for the control of the heart is won or where it is lost. And it depends upon the weakness or the strength of your will. And then ultimately it depends upon whether you're born again or you're lost in sin. So the will of the heart is not just an ability, it's actually our resolve, it's the arbiter. Whether it's to to be resolved and be determined, like Ruth, in Ruth 1 it says, Naomi saw that that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her and she said no more. She recognized, I'm in over my head, this young lady is determined to follow me no matter what. Or the resolve not to decide or to act at all. That's still an act of the will. Even the most passive person eventually decides to do something, even if that decision is to do nothing. It's still an act of the will. And we simply describe it as as passiveness. But passive aggressiveness is still aggressiveness. It's not obvious, it's not extroverted, but it's still a decision uh, to do this. I had a, a roommate in college, and uh, he was my roommate when I was an RA of a floor, and um, being an RA, I was always putting up, you know, posters or putting up messages to the guys on the floor and I'd put up uh, four thumbtacks in each of those corners. I would inevitably walk by uh, those and one of those thumbtacks would be pulled out, especially the top corners so it would hang down. And this person clearly understood this was getting to me. And it's not because I was obsessive compulsive, it's because I, I was a responsible leader. And... Um, <laughs> And finally, I brought it out at a meeting, and I said, whoever's, you know, doing the thumbtack thing, you need to stop, you know, so, which was stupid, you know, escalated it. And then it started happening more often. It was in the second semester, my roommate confessed that he was the one doing it. That was passive-aggressive, but it was very intentional. It was very clever, and it was very effective. It worked. And then I threatened him physically, and it stopped, but which also is an act of the will. But the thing we have to recognize, and we'll we'll be pursuing this throughout the day, 
is that the will has two sides. It has two sides. There's that side, that side of the will that is strong and is established. It's, it's determined. This is what I'm going to do. But it also has another side to it, which is choosing to be submissive, where it is yielding, where it submits. And this is true whether you're a non-Christian or whether you're a Christian. There are always these two sides involved in, in the will. So let's look at a person who's not a Christian, uh, or what we've called here the sinful posture of the will, and the vocabulary that Scripture uses to describe this. On the one hand, this is a person who is stubborn. And one of the, the words that Scripture uses to describe this stubbornness is hardened, a hardened heart. Who is the patron say to the hardened heart? Oh, this is bad. We, was there not enough coffee this morning? Pharaoh. Clearly Pharaoh. Pharaoh's an obvious answer. Okay. Sunday school answer. All right. And the word there um, that's used, it actually literally means fat. And it means that there's like layers of fat around that heart. So in so many layers that it's insensitive. You, when you touch it, it doesn't feel anything. It's not that different from the concept of somebody who plays a cello or guitar and they start to get calluses on the end of their their fingertips, so their fingertips aren't so sensitive, and they can take it. Well, that's what's describing. That's what's described here. It's this fat, layered, thick heart that is is so stubborn and so rebellious it doesn't feel anything. In King Lear by Charles, by uh, William Shakespeare, um, he has this line where King Lear says to his to his daughter Cordelia, he says, "Thou marble-hearted fiend," which is really really hard. Heart, But scripture talks about this. The Lord says to Moses, go to, to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. Even the Philistines understood this in 1 Samuel 6.6 6, when they, they uh, received the Ark of the Covenant. They said, send it back. Let's learn a lesson from the Egyptians who hardened their hearts. Even they could see this, understood it. In Romans 2.5, Paul says, uh, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And then Hebrews 3.8 Given that instruction about how a pilgrim says, do not harden your hearts as the children of God did in the wilderness, in the day of testing in the wilderness, quoting from Psalm 95. So that's one of the Bible's favorite ways of, of talking about this heart. But also it's interesting how the, the, uh, the sort of biology spreads out and you get similar phrases that mean exactly the same thing, uh, a stiff-necked people or hard-hearted uh, people or uncircumcised of heart. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The concept there is very, very clear. But uncircumcised has its use in the Old Testament and the New. It's, it's referring to the same thing, this, this sort of stubbornness of heart, a heart that is not alive to God. But on the other hand, excuse me, it's not just a heart that is stubborn and resistant. At the same time, it's a heart that is weak and even enslaved because it's not set. It's not established. That's one of the favorite ways to describe this in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, it was describing uh, one of these evil kings. He says, and he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He had not established and strengthened his heart that way. Instead, he was weak. And so there's lots of terms the Old Testament uses to describe this weak heart. It's a heart that, that faints, it's afraid, uh, it melts, which is another way of talking for its lack of, of courage. Or in Genesis 
42, 28, when Joseph's brothers found out that all the money was back in their bags when they're going back down to uh, their homeland, it says their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another. What has God done to us? Or in Numbers 32, 7, when, when Caleb uh, said to his brothers, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel? Or uh, Rahab in Joshua 2, she's speaking to the spies and she said, when we heard what your God had done at the Red Sea, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. So it's just another way of t- describing the heart that is weak. But going beyond this, uh, th- this idea of the weakness of the heart, um, it's, it's effective to think of it this way. This is a heart that's enslaved. And this is what Paul does in Romans 6, right? In v- Romans 6, in about verses 16 to 22. And there he talks about how you used to be slaves to sin. But now you are slaves to righteousness, which is to say that everybody is a slave in one way or another. So in the end, Bob Dylan is right again. Everybody's got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. Okay, that one will, I won't do that with the next conference. <laughs> but you see why that's, why that's so significant, because that language of slavery is leaning back upon Exodus. Right? What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? And the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of that house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt, out of that house of bondage, a house of slavery. That becomes a paradigm for the people of God throughout the Bible. That's who we were. We were slaves. And that's described that way in Scripture. This is a heart that is a slave to its sin. It has no power to overcome that sin. So simultaneously, we're describing a person who, on the one hand, is stubborn and resistant to God, and with all of its energy will resist and dig in its heels and say, God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm not going to submit to your law. And yet at the same time, it's incredibly weak. And it can't help itself when it comes to sin. It has no power to resist whatsoever. Both these things are taking place simultaneously in the will. And we see exactly the same sort of thing working its way out with a Christian, only the categories are, re- are reversed. Because now this is a heart that is strengthened. Um, it's established. It has courage and resolve. Uh, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Lang- the language there is he set his heart. He was determined. Or 1 Chronicles 22.19, set your mind to seek the Lord. Psalm 62.10, set not your heart on riches. This is a, this is a heart that, that is truly established, that is set in. It's, it's, it's fixed upon God with all of its energy. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, put it this way. He said, it's not sufficient for judgment to be right. It must be likewise ready and strong. And you see what he's saying. He's saying it's not enough to simply know what is right and wrong. We have to see whether it's in your bones. Has it sunk down into your marrow? Is it a strong knowledge? Is that knowledge really shaped your life so that you're willing to resist? Now, an example of this would be something I learned when I, when I moved to Alaska after college. I lived there for three and a half years. And I remember, you know, starting to hear stories about grizzly bears. And, um, and it's, it's a terrifying thing when you go camping for the first time. And in fact, the very first time we went camping on Lazy Mountain outside of Palmer, Alaska, we're about 3,700 feet. And so it's a, it's a nice little mountain. My tent was there all by myself. And all of a sudden, I, I heard a, a bear outside of my tent. And I was terrified. And I thought I should at least look and see what it looks like before I die. 
So I opened my tent, and here was a chipmunk about this big. And I said, you have the heaviest feet on this mountain. But you have this fear, and eventually as I eventually moved to Fairbanks, which is serious grizzly country, you started to learn what you're supposed to do, and every Alaskan knows what you're supposed to do. There's like this three steps of what you do depending upon the distance of the bear, and if they see you or not, and you just try to make your way away from them, and, but if they are standing and looking at you, that means they, they have spotted you, and they're kind of saying, look, I, I see you, or I, you know, some fuzzy thing. They have terrible vision, but they can smell you, definitely. Then if they turn sideways, um, he's saying, I, I see you. This is how big I am. This is your, your second chance. Um, but then every Alaskan knows that if that bear charges you, what you're supposed to do. And almost everybody knows what you're not supposed to do. What are you not supposed to do? You're not supposed to run. Everybody knows in their mind you're supposed to curl up in a fetal position and put your hands on the back of your head. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you know. It's whether you have the courage to pursue that knowledge, whether you have the resolve to do that very thing. But for me, I chose another method. I only camped with slow running friends. I said, it was very simple. <laughs> nice knowing you. <laughs> have a nice life for the next 30 seconds, but anyway. Um, but see, it's, that's very much to the point. It's, it's, it's not just what you know, it's is it, is it taken root? Has it shaped your will? This is a heart that is strong, and that's, that's a Christian heart. It's, it's a heart that is, is being established and strengthened by God's word and, and by his spirit. It's, it's a will that's being transformed. And so that you have people that originally were very weak and, and had no courage, and they, they become these heroes and these warriors of the faith. We have all kinds of stories about that in, in church history. One of them was Thomas Cranmer, uh, who was um, known by King Henry as the chameleon. He called him a chameleon. He was a guy that just would go with, with, the, with the, you know, the shifting winds. So we have a Catholic queen. Okay, I've become a Catholic. And, and that's what he did, that he recanted of his reformed views. And, um, and then he said that he um, did not recant them, and he was put in prison. And he said in prison, no, I've recanted again. And so I don't believe this Protestant stuff, but overnight God visited him. And as he was taken to a pulpit where he was supposed to deliver a message to the people to be Catholic, basically, I'm simplifying the story. God had worked in his heart and he began to preach the doctrines of grace. And they came up and grabbed him. And they took him to the stake. And as he approached the stake, he said, Thou offending right hand, thou did first write against my heart, you shall be first burned. And what he was saying is he was looking at his right hand where he had written these recantations and saying, I don't believe in the doctrines of grace. I don't believe in the sovereign mercy of God. He literally, as he approached that fire, took his arm and put it into the fire and burnt it to a crisp. And then he was killed. This is a man who was a coward in the eyes of King Henry. And he died as a warrior. That's because it's a heart that's been strengthened in its will. And yet at the same time, that same heart is one that is surrendered. It's humbled. It's repentant. It's even broken, Psalm 51 says. We'll come back to that. And so you see the same thing taking place in a Christian. There's, there's a part of the will that is strong and resolved and determined, but the other part that is submitted to God and is saying to him, do with me as you wish. And so as we think upon the sin of our hearts, uh, we need to uh, pay attention to the vocabulary of Scripture, which is quite choice. And I said this the other day that God has given to us a cluster of terms for sin. 
Because sin is not just one thing. It's not just one angle. It's not just your thought life. As we saw yesterday, it's not just about your desires. It's also about your will. And so one of the popular words in the Old Testament for sin is the word transgression. And the word transgression means essentially rebellion. It means to revolt. It means to uh, defiantly overthrow the rule of your superior. This is the will in rebellion. If you want to know what the word is in the Old Testament that's describing a political coup where somebody's trying to overthrow uh, the, the government, this is it. If somebody has a coup against the king, this is that type of rebellion, a, a revolt. And this is the word God has given to us to describe our sin as it pertains to our will. So Exodus 23, 21, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Isaiah 1, 2, the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Jeremiah 2, 29, why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. Hosea 7, 13, woe to them for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. And so you have this vo vocabulary of uh, transgression and to transgress, this kind of open, brazen defiance um, against the, the one in authority, this disloyalty, this disobedience. It's describing a rebellious and stubborn heart. And it's so helpful that, that God gives us um, these different words. And these three days, we've looked at the three most used words in the Old Testament for sin. And they appear four times together in the Old Testament. One of them is Psalm 51, those opening verses, where sin, iniquity, and transgression are all brought together. And is it not interesting that when God descends upon the mountain in Exodus 34, this is the fourth time Moses has been on the mountain after the golden calf incident, when, Mo, when God could have struck dead all of Israel, he descends and he stands in the cloud next to Moses and he reveals who he is. He declares his name, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The very same three words we see at the beginning of Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Leviticus 16. And here, um, it's helpful for us to appreciate that this idea of breaking God's law, which is how the word transgress as a verb is used, it shows us there's this rebellion in us, this, this sort of way in which we're, we're resisting God. And so that's what the word means. So as we think of, of a person who's, who's not a Christian, or as we think of ourselves in our worst state, it means that as we think of these two sides of the will, that on the one hand it's being strong-willed, stubborn and resistant, against God, having a hard heart or a heart of a stone. And you know what we were saying earlier about that hard heart? It means it's a heart that's covered with layers and layers and layers of fat. And that's the heart that cannot see and it cannot hear. Remember when I talked about how when Christ defended his use of parables, he quoted Isaiah 6. And he's quoting there how Isaiah was commissioned and Isaiah was warned, you're going to preach, preach, preach. And though they see, they're not going to see. Though they hear, they're not going to hear. And why is that the case? Because of their hardened heart. And it's a hardened heart that has no feeling. It's incapable of being sensitive to sin. It doesn't see, it doesn't hear, it doesn't understand. And it's a hard heart that does not submit 
Romans 8, 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God because it cannot. Or Psalm 81, 11, My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And again, just, it's not just a language of a hard heart, but people who are stiff-necked, who have a flint forehead or a stubborn shoulder or an uncircumcised heart. And so that's one side to it. It's a strong will, and yet simultaneously there is this, this weak will. And that's a person who uh, is submissive and, and powerless with regard to sin. And so obviously this is a person who lacks self-discipline. There's, there's no self-control. There's no strength to resist temptation or adversity, or as soon as it's difficult, it says, no more of this. Is it not interesting that when our Savior speaks of the, in the parable of the sower, of the seed falls on, on four different types of soil, there is that one type of soil that, that gladly receives the word with joy, but adversity comes. And it, what it reveals is that the will has not been involved in this. Again, think of what Richard Sib says, it's not sufficient for the judgment to be right. It must be likewise ready and strong. And this is a sort of will that is not ready and strong. And part of that being weak-willed involves enslavement. Again, remember what we were saying earlier about how this is built upon uh, Israel's former life in Egypt, a life of slavery and bondage. But Exodus 22 says, I brought you out of that land of Egypt, out of that house of slavery. And so the New Testament builds upon this. In John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, that's totally contrary to what the world says. I'm free. I can do what I want. And that's not what the Bible says. You're totally enslaved. You can't help yourself. So it's the unbeliever who is a slave to sin and corruption and death and the world and, and Satan. Listen to the New Testament, Galatians 4.9. Now that you've come to know God or be known, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Or Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Or 2 Peter 2.19, let's get at what I was just saying. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Hebrews 2.15 speaks of the work of Christ, that he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's not just being a slave to sin. It's being a slave to the sting of sin, namely death, and being a slave to, to that fear because it's a heart that doesn't understand that on the other side of death there is an answer, there is a life that can be attained if they would only but submit to Christ. This is a heart that is totally enslaved. It's a heart that melts. It's a heart that faints. It's a heart that is, is afraid. And so you see, both these things are true. That on the one hand, we have the non-Christian who is both strong-willed and, and weak-willed, but that, but that strong will is exercised towards God to resist him, to be hostile to him, to refuse to submit to him, even though it's plain as day that this world was made by him and his glory and his wisdom and his beauty is sprinkled everywhere around creation. The creation is screaming at him. He refuses to submit. It's interesting, you get to the book of Revelation, it talks about these terrible curses 
that God allows to come upon the earth. And it says, and yet they would not repent of their sin. They would not submit. That's that strong heart. And yet, on the other hand, it is weak-willed against sin. Totally enslaved, totally powerless before those forms of temptation. But then there's the Christian, where the opposite is true. There is this ability to resist temptation and to fight and to fight and to fight. And it's important to see that it doesn't mean that it's always winning. But there's still that resistance to sin. I will not submit in the end. I will not be overcome. I think of Captain America when Steve Rogers, before his transformation, he's in an alley and he's just getting beat up terribly. And what does he say? He says, I could do this all day. That's a Christian. We lose a lot of battles. But in our heart of hearts, we will not submit to this world. And yes, we're going to be mocked and we're going to be laughed at by our friends. We are not going to submit to their ways. We're not going to bow to that kind of peer pressure. And yes, there's many times in which we might even be punished for being Christians. Punished because we're not willing to work upon Sunday. Or people that mock us because of things we won't be willing to do. But we can do this all day. And I'm going to lose a lot of these battles. But God has strengthened my will to the point that I know I must resist and fight and fight and fight. But on the other hand, there is this pliable, soft side to our will that submits to him and bows before him as Lord and writes a blank check and say, ask whatever you want. Take whatever you wish. I am completely in your service. And that is a will that God can use. That is one of a servant that says, I am now a slave to righteousness, which means I am free. And so it's important to see these, these dual sides of the will. And obviously, we don't believe we're uh, non-Christians anymore, that um, we're Christians, but it's helpful to see in this language of, of sin, of transgression and rebellion, we see the residual effect of sin. And we see in ourselves those times when we want to resist our parents, we want to disobey them, those times we want to tell the boss what we think about him. There are those times when we find ourselves resisting God. We know exactly what's right. But in our heart of hearts, in our will, we find ourselves still resisting it. Or those times or those moments or those categories of our life or those, those secret closets that we have that we've not opened to him, where we've not surrendered to him. Everybody else sees a nice picture on the outside, but there are those areas where we have not submitted to him, where there needs to be more work done on our will, where the clay needs to be soft so that God could ply it and shape it. So hopefully that will set us up well so we can talk about what does it mean to repent then, knowing that we have this duality of function of the will of our heart. And it's very important to appreciate the fact that the reformers understood that when it comes to this portion of our heart, this is where we expressly need the sovereign, gracious hand of God to be at work. This is not something we can do in our own strength. That is the greatest lie the sight that Satan can tell us. Well, I'm just not going to do this again. It's not true. And it shows that we're not acquainted with ourselves. We don't know ourselves as we should. That we need to be honest about our weaknesses. We need to be honest about the areas that need to be strengthened with regard to our will. Okay, that's all the material I have, which means we have almost 40 minutes left for questions. <laughs> I overestimated my ability. But I don't want to just 
go on and on when we could clear it up. Uh, thank you so much for these messages. Um, while you were talking, two streams of thought that I've been working through kind of came together. Uh, the one is, in the matter of the will, I often hear reformed Christians talking about the will as if they have not actually experienced effectual calling. Part of effectual calling is the renewing of the will, but I often hear people talk about, well, you know, my will is still wicked. It's still in bondage. No, it's not. We do make choices. And we make them with renewed wills. Not perfect wills, but renewed wills. Mm -hmm. But the second stream is something that is, it's a, a quote that has become more and more powerful and meaningful to me. We walk by faith and not by sight. And there's so much in the world that is pushing us to conform to the world. But we need to look beyond that and exercise the will and live by faith. I, I wonder if you could maybe expand on that. If, if maybe, first thing, am I, am I on the right track in bringing these two things together? Second, could you expand on that a bit? Well, I agree with the former very, very much. Uh, well, I agree with both of them. The second one's from Scripture, so obviously I agree with it. Um, <laughs> Paul was right in 2 Corinthians 5 in what he said. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm making the same connection that you are with regard to these things, but I think that um, I could take a shot at it. So I don't know if this will be helpful or not. But I think, I think the first point you're making is very, very important that we are new creatures in Christ. We have new hearts, new minds, and which means that, um, and Paul's making this case in, in Romans 6 when he's asking, should we just continue in sin? And he says, well, no, you've been baptized into Christ. You're united to him in his death and his resurrection. You're a new creature. And so, yes, we, we have the ability and we have a new will where God, by his grace and his spirit, sustained by him, but new nonetheless where we're able to, to make these, these choices and, and where we're um, able to, I think, more accurately pray with regard to those areas where we need to be more strengthened. But um, as Pastor Al is saying, Nonetheless, it's true, we're struggling with, with residual sin. Uh, the remnant of sin is still there and it's still working. And, and it's quite powerful. But it's not reigning. And that's where a lot of Christians uh, bow to the lie. And that's where, perhaps this is the connection you're making, where faith needs to kick in. Yes. And where we really do need to believe in the promises of God. And I think it's hard because we do kind of go by what we see outwardly many times. We don't see that progress. We don't... We don't see all the successes, we don't only see the failures, and we need the trust in his promise that he is at work in us. Which brings up Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This is one of the most important promises God gives to us, where we are commanded to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but then we're given this, this next verse, which is like the foundation of it. It, it. it tells us how we are able to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will according to his, his good pleasure. And so what that means is you work, and the reason you can work is because God is at work, and he's working in you to work and to will. And the reason why that promise is so important is that it's, say, it's saying to us that God is not only enabling us 
to do these things, to work, but he's at work in us to desire and to will them. That he understands this is where the battle is for many of us. This is, for some of you in this room, this is your number one prayer request, or at least it ought to be. Because some of the battles you're losing, it's, it's with the will. And yet, this is, so this is your promise, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, that he is at work there at that very, at that very, very core of the problem. And so it's important to, to appreciate the promises of God that are assuring us that, that God is very much aligning with us, and by his spirit and his will, this is the thing that he's shaping. But it's, it's largely invisible work. It's, it's difficult to detect, and we're just too often drawn to what we see and said, well, I've not made any progress in the last three days. Well, that's, that's silly. You have to take the long view. And especially in matters of the will, uh, this, is a, this is a long, long process. So we do need to, to have eyes of faith. I had another thought, but, but it uh, escaped me. I think I'm going to ask uh, something regarding to what you just said, but I'm going to give a, a specific example. Um, when you confront somebody about some particular sin, so I'm going to give an example. Like a member of my family confronted me about how I yell at the children, and then they said, "Will you stop yelling?" And I, well, and then I got my excuse of like, "Well, would they behave? You know, and they obey me." Um, so then I felt cornered because, you know, repentance. So they're asking me to repent, and I was giving all these reasons why. And then I, and then I came to the point where am I going to repent? And I said, well, I'm going to try. And it sounded so weak, so not full of faith. But I also felt like I couldn't say I'm going to stop because... I know that I'm not going to stop, but that's wrong too. So I felt like I couldn't, I don't know, I just felt like I wasn't repenting, um, but I want to repent, but I, I will try. You know what I mean? I felt weak. I feel like I didn't have faith, and it was, uh, it, it's heartbreaking. I don't know, you have a comment of how do I, so then I thought, well, what would be the word? Resolve? To to put more effort into this, um, praying. Um, I appreciated Valerie um, uh, at the women's retreat. She said that she would yell at her kids and, and, she's, and she will ask God to take it away. And the God said, no, I'm not gonna take it away, and, but you need to stay close to me and keep asking. What, what would you say to that in terms of repentance and the will also, like I'm gonna will not to yell at my kids. Uh, I think one of the first days we, we talked about definitions of repentance, and um, I don't know if I put the whole definition in there from the catechisms, but part of it, um, and we'll, we'll talk about this later more, but <clears throat> it's, it's, repenting is not just um, confessing our sins but part of it also is endeavoring towards new obedience. I think the word endeavor is your word. And what I so appreciate about the appearance of that word in the catechism is it's, it's the right word because it's, it's so realistic about the fact that we are sinners and, and sinners fail, and they fail repeatedly. 
A person could not really be repented if they were not willing to endeavor towards new obedience, if they're not willing to say, I want to try. And so I understand that, you know, I'm going to try sounds weak, but there's, there's not much more than that that we can promise. We can't say, okay, if I ever do this again, then, you know, you can just shoot me, you know, or just or walk away, you know. And so there would be nobody here at this conference if we, you know, believe that. So endeavoring says that I'm recognizing what I did is wrong, and I, I know what is right, and that's the road I want to be on. And I can't promise I'll never stray from this road again. In fact, I'm almost certain I'm going to commit this same sin again. And so I think the, the endeavoring is saying, this is the direction I desire for my will to go in. This is the very thing I'm going to ask God to help me in, that my resolve would be stronger, that I would grow in self-control. And, and to appreciate that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, which means two things simultaneously. It is a command. There's nobody in this room that's, that is not allowed or not supposed to grow in self-control. You can say, well, I'm doing all the other fruit of the Spirit. I mean, give me a break. That's what, a 90%? I passed, you know. And, and you can't say that. But because it's a fruit of the Spirit, it means it's something we can't do in our own strength. And so, yes, the going to him in prayer and seeking the means of grace, having the family as a form of accountability is, is the right way to go. And seeking out uh, others who um, have fought this same urge and the same tendency and getting their advice. And so, How did you get control of yourself? I mean, everybody else's kids, like, they're really just, like, awesome, great kids. So that's why they don't yell at them. And that's, that's, that's not true. <laughs> I think that's what I would say for, for now, Lord Ace. I don't want to think about it some more. I, I think it's a great, it's a good practical application question of that this is where the issue is. Because you know what's right and wrong. And there are those moments, even when your desires, um, your true desire is not to do this. It, but your will is saying, no, let it go. They deserve it. And that's a battle we face in lots of things. Uh, similar, I guess, kind of related theme, but internal versus external. Toward the end, uh, you gave two examples of a child, uh, you know, about their will of being obedient to their parent or an employee holding back and not telling the boss what they really think. And I think your point is, you know, the submissive, submissive humble, yielded heart will not do these things. But how about the flip side, as parents and grandparents, when we're trying to help shape the will of our children, mm -hmm. we often latch just on the external. Right. Do this thing, and then it becomes more an act of external obedience. How do we get to the will that, that we desire to be what everything springs from? Yeah, it, it can be that. And, and, and it can be that, especially if we say, all, all I'm interested in is for you to behave. You know, and if we talk like that, then you're right. And so, which is what every parent says, you know, can't you just behave? Uh, why do you have to be Neanderthals only in the restaurant, you know? And um, I think that it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with addressing behavior, but understanding we're trying to work back and to address it that way and say, this is what, you, what you're doing, we don't like that, but it's also expressing um, a lack of control or you're, you're really angry at your siblings or whatever, and, and addressing that heart issue as well, because that's the real problem, that's the root of it. But there's nothing wrong with addressing outward behavior. And in fact, it's not always the case that just doctrine informs life. Sometimes life informs doctrine. So there's a lot of times we're shaping our kids, and a lot of our children come to love the Sabbath because we made them go to evening worship. And many times they, they would say, do we have to go back to church? 
And, um, and we told him this is a good thing. It reminds me of a, of a joke. It's been at least 25 minutes since I've told the joke. But um, it's a Polish friend of mine, and the man woke up one day because his wife came in, woke him up, and he said, you need to, you need to go to church. It's Sunday. And he said, I don't want to go to church for these two reasons. I don't feel like it, and two, these people, they hate me. And um, she said, well, you should go to church for these two reasons. Number one, it's good to go to church. Number two, you are their pastor. <laughs> and that's, that's a battle that uh, we've... I never faced that battle, but uh, I could generally say that. But, but I think that, you know, uh, I'm thinking of Tripp's book, you know, Shepherding a Child's Heart, where that's, you know, that's the goal. But, but showing our children the joy of Sunday can eventually shape their heart to where they, they really, really, really do look forward to Sunday. But it began perhaps as a habit when they were very young. And a lot of life is like that. And that's where discipline comes in. And like, there was a good question last night about reading my Bible. What if I don't feel like reading my Bible? It's a good discipline. And many times those disciplines are eventually what awaken our heart and light that, that flame and get it going. I've got this little creature that God created buzzing around my, my head. And it reminds me when my wife and I were at Gordon Conwell sitting at the feet of Meredith Klein. And, and one night in class, a fly started buzzing around his head. And he was doing this. You know, and finally, even a student got up and tried to do it, which looked really stupid. You know? And it dawned on the student, and he sat down. And finally, Dr. Klein says, Beelzebub, get behind me. And the fly disappeared. It's like, who is this man? <laughs> Even the flies obey him, you know. I'm not kidding. It's a true story. I'm not saying there's a cause and effect, but you never know. Another question. Okay. Oh, sorry. Um, so when you were talking about weak hearts in non-believers, it made me think of our Wednesday night Bible study when we were going through First Thessalonians and the verse, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And I was wondering if you could contrast like the faint-hearted or a faint heart in a non-Christian who's putting their hope and trust in the world versus a Christian who's very faint-hearted and feeling very weak, because often it feels the same. But I was wondering if you could contrast that. So let me ask you the question, Lydia. Contrast the non-Christian who's faint-hearted and the Christian who might be struggling with being faint-hearted. Yes, exactly. So I would, I would say the one can do something about it, the other one can't. So the, the one has an issue of nature in that the non-Christian by nature simply just cannot muster the sort of spiritual strength it takes to resist sin. And that's what we're talking about. You'll meet non-Christian friends who you think have 10 times the willpower that you have. And they might in certain categories, especially, you know, like, like fitness or stuff like that. There's so much more discipline, get up early, whatever. But the motives are very different. And that's part of what's in play here because we're interested in the whole heart. Um, but the Christian who's struggling with being faint-hearted is a very different ballgame because the sky's the limit. The non-Christian is, is struggling with the spiritual inability to do anything that is pleasing to God ultimately. They can do lots of good things, but there's a cap, there's a ceiling on what's happening. It reminds me of a story 
of um, a man who looks out of his apartment and he sees all these people looking up to the sky. And he's curious what they might be looking at, but he can't see because he has a ceiling over him. And that ceiling is his own, of his own construction. It's called naturalism. He does not believe that God exists, so he lives in a closed universe, and that's why he can't see. They can. And that's the non-Christian confined in their own apartment where there's a ceiling that they've constructed over themselves. And there's a, there's a limit to what, what they can do. But for the Christian, there's no limit. All of us can become a Thomas Cranmer. Great examples in church history of, of people who started out faint-hearted and became very bold and courageous for Christ. That would be the difference. And two, it's, it's you know, the, the English word here is, is sort of uh, felicitous to say encourage. I mean, don't, this word, give courage to those who lack courage, right, in the English. It's not there in the Greek, but sometimes English is better than the Greek. In the corner, Brother Kent has a question, I believe. Um, maybe not so much a question, but when Alan was talking and some of the rest of you as well, I was thinking of the hymn we sang this morning, He Leadeth Me, um, and specifically the phrase that I would clasp his hand in mine, um, when obviously he's already holding our hand and, and guiding us through, but um, that picture of clasping our Lord's hand, I mean, all the pictures that that brings to, brings to mind, being on our knees in prayer, reading the word. I mean, obviously these things are, are, you know, ultimate to actually molding our wills to his and bringing us together. Um, it's not just our will, but his that is, is guiding us through. So. No, I think it's, it's good. He is always guiding, directing, leading, shaping, going before us. He's behind us, under us, around us, in us, doing that very thing. Well, we don't want to envy the fire in the cloud that Israel had in the wilderness. We have something better. Um, just kind of coming from a practical perspective um, on the discipline for, like, your desires, I guess, how much would you say is, um, like, spiritual influence versus, like, practical, real-world discipline I guess because like you can talk about like like your heart being drawn to things your heart being um, pulled towards things but then there also is like the the physical discipline aspect of it like are you doing the things that would encourage this in your life but then I, I know that you can't like discount one or the other and say it's all only the discipline of your life and if you're doing the things then they should be there and it also can't be well, it's only when you're feeling it that way that you know that you're doing it. Like, does that make sense? Sorry. No, I, I, I think I understand it. We'll, we'll see if I do. But I think that, um, I don't think it's, it's just the younger generation. I think it came with my generation. If you're, if you're not feeling it, if you don't do it when, when only you feel like doing it, then it's not authentic. It's not being real. So I shouldn't say anything I don't feel like doing because then I'm not being true to myself. I'm not being authentic. That gets at part of your question, and that's not true. That just simply is not true. If I know what is right, I'm showing my, my, my better self if I commit myself to doing it, whether I feel like doing it or not, because I'm committed to what's true and I'm taking the higher road. 
And uh, there's a lot of things in life where, I mean, we talked about this yesterday a little bit about whether we feel like doing it or not, we should do it and commit ourselves to it. It's when we see a long pattern where we're not feeling any desire or compulsion to do it that we should start asking questions about, how am I really doing, you know? And it's the same sort of thing where somebody might look at you and say, wow, the last two weeks you look really tired, you know? And I mean, some of us have friends like that that do stuff like that. And uh, they even do it when we don't like it, you know? So you look terrible today, thank you so much. And, <laughs> But, but th what they're saying is, that, you know, you're starting to show the symptoms of something. And, and each of us can detect that in the life, too, that I've just had, you know, no discipline in my life the last couple of weeks. What's going on? But I think that the larger picture, too, we don't want to forget is body and soul. And it's this younger generation that's been really good to talk about a fully embodied spirituality and to really take seriously the body. Richard Gaffin said that the Reformed faith takes the body more seriously than any other branch of Christendom. And, and it reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is using this metaphor that I'm an athlete and so I exercise self-control and he talks about working hard and then he uses grappling and box, boxing as metaphors, but he says this in verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disciplined. In other words, he's saying that there's, there's an aspect of Christian spirituality where I'm not just talking about my heart, I'm disciplining my body. There are certain things I'm paying attention to because all of my life is an embodied walk. And so there, there are ways in which I can um, help myself by committing myself uh, to what I'm doing physically, whether that's health or other things. That, that's, that's part of what we should keep in mind. And it goes back to earlier what I said about there's many things we teach our children by simply teaching them the motions, how you do this, and, and we're going to have these habits in our life. And that begins to, to shape them, and it gives us a launching point to begin to go inward and talk about why do we do these things. I mean, that's pedagogy. Youngest children, you tell them what? Older children, you tell them why. There's, see, there's youth ministry right there in one sentence. You know, Younger ones, what? Older ones, why? And those are always the questions that teenagers are asking. Why? Why do we do it this way? Why do we do that? Why that? And that gives us an opportunity to do that. But I don't think I've answered the other half of your question. Uh, is there anything lingering that, is that enough for you to think upon or do you need more? I was just kind of wondering about like the balance between the two, like which would you take more in terms of like looking at yourself? So like, but I think that makes a bit more sense where it's, it's, it's not actually, it's like a balance between the two more, I think. I think I got it. I think you got it more than I did. <laughs> but we'll talk, let's talk afterwards, too, because I just feel like unsatisfied with my answer. All right, thank you. Um, <clears throat> one thing that our young people have to struggle with is trying to fit in with the surroundings, you know, whether they join a sports league or some of the older people are getting part-time jobs, you know, getting more involved with the culture around our communities and stuff. Um, so as we go now back to our families and our churches, you know, what are some practical ways to foster habits, to, um, to foster stronger wills, godly wills, and, and habits to, to reflect more our Christian ethos or Christian, not only our uh, beliefs, but really our, our, our our deeper desires of our heart, 
uh, that we can foster in them so that they're more willing or more uh, brave, if, if you will, um, or more confident to speak up their minds in a godly way and shine their Christian beliefs in their communities and their culture. So let me, let me stall and think of the answer to the question by telling you something I forgot to say and I would like to say. Um, but I think it's important, and I meant to scratch it down right beforehand, but this would be a word to parents, and this is a great opportunity to, to say this. I think if what we're saying is true, and obviously I think it's true, that parents, we need, we may have the wrong attitude about having strong-willed children. What kind of children do we need in this culture right now? We, we need lots of Martin Luther children. We, we need lots of children who are saying, I'm going this road, and who never look over their shoulders to see who's following them. So I think we need to praise God for strong-willed children. And, and you may not like my saying that, but it's true. And, um, and I raised five of them with my wife, and they came by it honestly through DNA. I'm not going to tell you which side of the family <laughs> came from. Uh, but it took a while to get a positive perspective on having these strong-willed children. But we want to raise children who, when, that, when God, by his spirit, harnesses that strength of will, think of the good it can do. And it doesn't take you know, a, a crowd of young people to, to change a, a segment of society. I mean, one of the points of the book of Esther is that God just needs one teenage girl to overcome an empire. One courageous young woman. That's all he needed. With Nebuchadnezzar, he just needed one young man, Daniel. He just needs one who's saying, I'm committed to Christ. I'm going to follow him. I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what they think. And yet in our parenting, we are greatly discouraged with a strong-willed child. Now, that strength comes out many times in resisting us. But you have to recognize there's something really valuable and important there. With that child is stomping their feet, angry, pushing back at us, we're thinking, oh, I can't wait to see what this is going to be when Christ gets hold of it. Now, maybe you could tell yourself that at the time. That might help a little bit, because uh, that's not easy. And actually, we have this all wrong, too, because it's a child who is throwing a temper. It's not a strong-willed, they're weak-willed, because they can't contain their anger. So we've got this all wrong, I think. And I think one of the best things we can do with our children is to encourage them to have that kind of courage and to, and to, and to really step out. And I think it means to encourage them uh, to get to participate in certain things where they would like to say, well, I'm not sure I really want to do that. I'm not sure I have the confidence. I might be rejected. Well, I remember taking a pretty bold move when I was a young man. I won't tell you what it is. And I had a couple of friends who were skeptics. I'd made up my mind I was going to do this. And I said back to one of them, what's the worst that can happen? And I just realized that's my new philosophy of life. And I've said it, I've used it so many times since. Like, what is the worst thing that could happen? And I think to encourage our kids to have that kind of boldness and to express their will in ways that are uh, positive and noble and good and praiseworthy, but not to be frightened by a strong will. Now, that's easy for me to say. My children are grown up. They're still expressing that strength of will. And it was, parenting is the hardest thing in the world. It makes you feel like an absolute idiot. Only the young people are laughing. Everybody else knows it's true, right? <laughs> After our first child, Karen and I thought, we're going to write a book on parenting. Then we got three boys. 
started reading books on parroting. <laughs> How to raise a dog, you know, <laughs> <not> just, <laughs> just kidding. I, so I don't, so, the, so now getting to, to answer your question, I don't know. I, th I think one of the things is to try to encourage our children to see the worth of work and how important it is just to work hard, how satisfying it is to work hard. And, and I think that's something that's lost on us in a, in a culture that is, is absolutely idolatrously committed to leisure and to entertainment and to see the importance of, of hard work. But to get them to, to feel the satisfaction of that, I'm not sure I have good answers for that because our children are so different. And I think one thing, too, is to make sure we don't clone our children. Not all of them are meant for college. Not all of them are meant for this particular field of study that we have chosen for them. When, in fact, God has given them a gift set that's like this. So I, th I think that's an area where we need to make sure that we're not trying to clone ourselves or we're hoisting our expectations about vocation on them. We could definitely want to encourage um, them and the expectations we have for them as, as young soldiers of Christ and to be brave and courageous. But... So that's a very unsatisfying answer. I think it's a good question. I think it's, it's a great practical question, but I'm not sure I could go much further without just rambling and wasting everybody's time. Uh, Craig, can you talk a little bit more, just expand on uh, what you said at the beginning, the, the heart chooses, and then sometimes the heart chooses to not do anything. Right. The action of doing, of taking no action. Can you just kind of expound on that? Yeah, it's just passiveness. And, and passiveness uh, is the easy way out. I'm just not going to get involved. And, but that's still the commitment. It's still a commitment. And so, and like I said, there's aggressive and there's passive aggressiveness. The one looks more docile, but it's still equally committed. <clears throat> and we just have to be aware of that. And there's lots of ways <clears throat> in which we express passive aggressiveness or passive anger. A lot of that comes out through sarcasm or innuendos or comments where I'm afraid to confront you, so I'll just, in humor, try to put in this, this comment. Sarcasm, the word means cutting flesh. It's very hurtful. It's very deliberate. It has no place in marriage. It really doesn't. I'm not going to look up to see who is laughing. But it's not my wife's laugh. I know my wife's laugh. She's back there going, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Um, but there's, we have all these chosen vehicles to express it. And, and I think we need to unmask it and see it for what it is. There's an act of the will involved there. And, um, and some of us struggle with it more than others. We have people that are definitely very upfront and give us their opinion, even when we didn't ask for it. And, and that can be difficult to handle as well. But it's passive, as a pastor, you know, passive aggressive people are more challenging. It's more difficult. In one sense, that's why the Dutch are so easy. I've not been picking on the Dutch. Ellie's not here. This is great. I can really go after the Dutch now. Because the, the Dutch are just simply, I know, I know, I see you. But you like me, so you're not going to tell her. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say about the Dutch. Uh, so I got to tell you about a wedding I did. It was two Dutch kids. We're both 100% Dutch. So we had four lines of Dutch, Dutchness going on here. And I said, you know, your, your parents are so happy you're marrying one another. So is God. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you're Dutch. In fact, God doesn't care that much. And, uh, and so, oh, yeah, yeah. There are cat lovers, and then there's the Dutch, right? 
And one of the kids, he says, he, with straight face of everybody, he says, you need to let, leave the Dutch alone. I said, quit wearing it on your sleeves. And then Don Brinks, who was one of the, the, uh, the elders in our church at Wheaton, one of, one of the uh, charter elders and members, one of the most beautiful men I've ever known, he said, Craig, he's, he's Dutch, he says, what was that line again? I need to memorize it. It was so excellent. So, so this is why I like you. Can you also expand on the positive side of choosing to do nothing? Yeah, there's a time when we sit things out. There's a time when we're not aggressive. And there's a time when we turn the cheek. That's a commitment. That's a, it's a harder thing to walk away from a fight, right? And there's a time we t- tell our children that's the very thing they need to do. And so uh, we need to be wise about the battles we choose. That's what our Lord taught us. You need to be wise as serpents, wise as wolves, but, but innocent as doves. You need to be blameless, but you should not be naive. You need to be smart and, and choose your battles. And there's ones you should walk away from. You know, like Paul says, wouldn't you rather be defrauded? I mean, come on. Your brother's taking from you, he's taking advantage of you, so what? Well, why are you pursuing this in the court? You know, this is ridiculous, this is shaming Christ. And so there's many fights where we're telling ourselves, I'm fighting the, the good fight. No, you're, you're just, you were offended because of your pride. And this is your ego, that's all it is. This is not a righteous battle. And so we have to choose those things. And then there are good battles, but then there are better battles. One of the best sayings I heard from a professor in college, we have to say no to the good things, so we say yes to the better things. And there's a lot of lesser priorities, and yeah, those are, that's a righteous cause. But that's not, the ur- that's not the urgent need. That's not the need of the moment. Have enough sense. This is where the battle is raging. Where should I be? Right here. And this side issue is, is not as important or vital. And so that's true. That's true in parenting as well right? I thought the worst thing that could happen is my children are standing around my grave and they're sharing stories about me. And the one thing they all agree on, that the most important thing they heard from me is dad was really concerned about our table manners. Wouldn't that be terrible? He really, he really reined in that obsessive compulsiveness towards the end of his life, as opposed to hearing something about Christ. And choose your battles, parents. There's so many petty things that we we just cling to and I think we're out of time for questions so you have 10 seconds and I have 20 seconds to answer a short short question so when we find out ourselves weak willed and uh, our heart is stubborn we know what God's will right thing to do but we realize we are so weak and um, in our worldly grief but we are spiritually grieved but at the same time we don't have power to overcome to submissive or um to be like, a <laughs> so what is the uh, the role of prayer? Practically, we can apply in those times when we are really vulnerable. Although we know uh, we know our heart's desire is not right with God, we we know we need to turn. But in those moments of temptation, those moments we feel rebellious, powerless, how we can rely on God's power, who can do all things, how we can rely on him and can you give us a better idea about how to pray how to rely on him in those times well this is so excellent because you actually lifted out a line that was in my margin that i never talked about and um it's how our lord taught us to pray he had six petitions and one of them is about our will we're saying your will be done and to mimic our Savior who, in, who taught his disciples to pray that in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. So this is an active petition before God. 
that most Christians should understand this is one of my top six petitions at all times is to address my will. So I would simply say that you've answered the question uh, wonderfully for us that prayer needs to be an active component in this because what is prayer? Prayer is coming to the very end of myself and it's admitting I have no strength, I have no wisdom, I, I don't know what to do. And so I'm coming to the one who alone does. And, and I'm not sure I have enough strength to make it through this day. Can you come and give me the strength for this day? I'm not going to worry about tomorrow because you've told me not to worry about it. And that's, and that's the, the daily nature of that prayer and those petitions. And so I, th- I think you've, you've helped us all by wedding these two things together of, of my feeling my lack of will and prayer. Because uh, as one man said, Prayer is only half of a pastor's work, but it's what gives power to the other half of his ministry. But that's true for every Christian. It's power, it's prayer that, that provides that, that strength where I'm going to God and I'm, I am abandoning my self-sufficiency. And I'm saying I do not have the resolve. And I'm laying this before him and saying, I desperately am in need of your help in this. So I think that's what you do. And, and, and we, we've got to get into our minds that prayer is our work. And there's nothing that we can do profitably without prayer. And we've, I think we've lost that in this generation, sadly. And we need to get back to business and get on our knees for this very thing, which we should do right now. Actually, let's just go. We can pray next, next hour because we have young people waiting and they seem so excited about snack time. And so do you. So, okay, you're dismissed. We'll see you at 11-ish.